Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. Today, we're going to focus on some of the documentation requirements of nurse practitioners with the increased number of nurse practitioners in the healthcare field, there are increased opportunities for lawsuits or claims of negligence, which makes looking at the documentation of nurse practitioners critical. As we all know, we have to reconstruct what happened first by looking at the medical record. Rebecca Pachel has experience as a family nurse practitioner She has spent time in the Peace Corps in Africa. She has a background in when she was in the Peace Corps in maternal child health. And she graduated from the University of Florida, where she lives now, as well as earned a bachelor's and a master's at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Rebecca also reviews cases as an expert witness looking at standard of care questions regarding nurse practitioners. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hi, Pat. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Thank you. And welcome back. This is not your first rodeo show with us. That is correct. Tell us a little bit about the the import of looking at documentation when a nurse practitioner is a suspected defendant or a potential defendant in a case. Give us a little bit of background. So just to set the stage of what we're gonna talk about today, we're gonna focus in on what legal nurse consultants are gonna look for in the medical record. And for myself, Pat mentioned, I am a family nurse practitioner uh, for the past almost 23 years. And I've been reviewing cases regarding nurse practitioners for about 10 years now. So for today's discussion, I'm gonna narrow it down to cases that take place in an office-based setting. Even though I do see patients also in the hospital, documentation's a little bit different. So I just wanna narrow it down to what are we looking for in the medical record? Um, that you know, What am I looking for in order to determine did the nurse practitioner standard follow the standard of care, was there negligence, et cetera. So documentation is essentially all we have. So it's it's critical. What was that expression that you compare the palest of inks with your memory? There's some phrase that relates to- I don't know if I've heard that phrase, but there- there, It'll come to you. And then there's the phrase that we've all heard as nurses, uh, you know, beginning as RNs, if it's not documented, it wasn't done. And and that applies. Yes, um, that is also one of those expressions that makes an expert cringe when thrown at the expert during a deposition, particularly if you're arguing that 
Yes, the nurses, absolutely. I'm confident they did what they were supposed to, but it's not in the medical record. And how do you explain that, Nurse Pichelle? How can you justify your opinion and it can go on from there? Exactly. Exactly. And it does. It definitely yeah, yes, it does. <clears throat> so let's assume that an attorney is contacting you, Rebecca, about reviewing a new case, tells you over the phone what the case is about, and then sends you medical records. Where do you start with that review? Okay. I think it's important to let our listeners know that an attorney may reach out to me at various stages in the game. For example, this may be like you mentioned, um, this is a potential case. It's in pre-suit. They want to send me the bulk of the medical records to determine, does this case have merit? Was there negligence? Or I may get a phone call or an email where it's much later in the game, meaning that a complaint has been filed. There's already a lawsuit underway. They um, have a clear idea of what where they think the negligence is, obviously. And somewhere along the line, a nurse practitioner was involved. So now they need me. So I may get from them in addition to the medical records, I may get, maybe they have an in-house legal nurse consultant that's an RN that's already kind of written up a summary. There's all this information. I may get depot transcripts. I may get expert reports. So that being said, I think it's important that you always try to review everything with an unbiased eye, right? Because they're Consulting me for my medical opinion, my clinical judgment, my years of experience. So I think it's very important that you do have to try to not be, not misled, but not be swayed so much in in, in what they may already have on the book, so to speak. So the, the number one thing I would say is try to read it with an unbiased eye. And I'm sure you've had the experiences I have with an attorney who comes to an expert and says, this is what the case is about. And then you read the medical records and you find out that's not what the case is about. There's another element that the attorney doesn't see because that person doesn't have the medical background that you do. And you spot the other issue and bring it to the attorney's attention. Absolutely. It happens all the time. And that's why I say it's so important every single time, take it with a grain of salt. I'm not saying they're, they're, they're wrong <clears throat> or that they're finding things that, that are false. I'm not saying that. It's just like you mentioned, you as the nurse practitioner have worked in that setting. You have expertise to know what is the day-to-day how do things work? What is supposed to be in the medical record? That happens all the time that we may find things that are missing, that that the attorneys never even knew to look for because they're not a, a medical professional. So um, yeah, that, that that's absolutely true. It happens a lot. I've also seen the situation, Rebecca, and, and you probably have also where if you're reviewing the case for the plaintiff attorney, sometimes the plaintiff doesn't remember the events correctly, 
or has an interest in shading the description of the events to favor themselves and convince the attorney of a certain scenario that's not substantiated in the medical record. So some of that discrepancy can be the plaintiff misleading the attorney, but then we can't also forget that there are events that happen that healthcare professionals don't document, deliberately leave out because it points the finger at themselves for an error that they've made. Uh, could you comment on that? Have you ever run into that situation? Um, I think I have run into that situation um, when you're involved in a case and you look through the, the medical records, all the objective information that's there, and in your mind, you're formulating a picture of how things happened, um, you know, clinically in terms of the timeline of the events and, you know, when the negligence happened or what the damages were. And then sometimes you're thrown a, a curveball where where it's already a lawsuit, you have said, yes, there, the standard of care wasn't followed. And then something comes out in the deposition of the patient's wife that was in the room. And the wife remembered the nurse practitioner saying X, Y, and Z, or I've had cases where the attorneys have gotten an affidavit from the patient's uh, you know, not bedmate, but roommate, for example, in the hospital, <laughs> the guy in the next bed. Uh, you know, I've had that happen where it was an episode of a case over severe hypoglycemia that the, the gentleman ended up dying. And then they had an affidavit from the roommate that, yes, he, you know, testified that that gentleman was calling out for orange juice, you know, from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. And a nurse never came in the room. So you have to kind of be prepared for anything and, and, and everything that could potentially alter your opinion or yes. I mean, you, you have to expect the unexpected because it will happen. You know, you remind me of a case of a man who was gotten out of bed by a, a tiny nursing assistant two days post-op and he collapsed on his knees and ended up injuring his cervical spine at the site of surgery. And there was absolutely nothing written in the nurse's notes about this fall. It was not reported to the neurosurgeon. The physical therapy student aide who was involved in this transfer wrote one tiny note that was tucked away in the physical therapy section of the medical record about the fact that he collapsed onto the floor. And it was the roommate who wrote a statement and the roommate's wife who observed this because they hadn't pulled the curtain between the two beds that described in detail what happened. Um, the man ended up becoming paralyzed from the thoracic level down in the middle of the night and it was too late to undo the damage. But you made me think about that affidavit it was very carefully written out. And I, I thought about it at the time and I never asked the attorney 
how did they track down the roommate? How would you know who was in the next bed? Because the hospital wasn't interested in volunteering that information. And I think it was, as I recall now, if they the roommate was so concerned about what happened to this man that they stayed in touch with him mm-hmm. after discharge. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, you would have no way mm-hmm. of knowing that. Or it's oftentimes the spouse that remembers because they've been there visiting and, you know, they get to talking with the roommate. But you bring up a very, very good point that I think is important to highlight for the listeners. Don't make the mistake when you're looking through medical records that you're only going to read the documentation of the nurse practitioner Absolutely not. You've got to read every single piece of information that's in there because you're absolutely right. And I've seen it happen too, um, particularly in hospital cases where you're absolutely right. There's no documentation of what happened from the, the nursing staff, but you'll get it from the physical therapy staff, the occupational therapists that are in there. Crazy things. Sometimes even the nutritionist is in the room and will document something. So you really have to look through it with a microscope. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of looking at things with a microscope, we're going to be looking at the nurse practitioner office records. You and I both grew up in an era in nursing when those were all handwritten. Now they are computer generated and, probably 99% of office practices, what should we be looking for in the notes of the nurse practitioner and how are they formulated? In other words, we know hospital records are a bunch of fields that are checked off. Are we going to see a narrative note in a nurse practitioner's office note or is it going to be a group of pieces of data that have been checked off? So the standard of care for office-based practices for both physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, whoever, you know, the the primary care provider is, and this is kind of nurse practitioner 101, it's written in the form of a SOAP note, S-O-A-P. And I'm sure our nurse practitioner listeners know exactly what that is, but just to review it, SOAP stands for subjective O is objective, A, assessment, and P being plan. So that's how the note should be formulated. And within that subjective section, you're going to start with the chief complaint and then the history of present illness, the review of systems, that makes up your subjective portion. Objective is going to be vital signs, any kind of lab results, diagnostic test results, and then your physical exam. The A stands for your assessment, meaning diagnoses, and then P is for plan. So that's how you should be writing your visit note. And I apologize if you hear rain in the background, Pat. It's Florida. It's raining. We're not hearing any rain at all. Okay, good. If you take us back to the the part of the note where the nurse practitioner comes up with a diagnosis. First of all, I assume that nurse practitioners are using medical diagnoses or the question, are they using nursing diagnoses? 
Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Whether you're an established LNC blogger or a beginner, blogging can build your business. A well-targeted blog brings the clients you want to your virtual doorstep. It's also a powerful way to network with your peers in your field. Perhaps most important, it gives you an opportunity to communicate directly with your readers and potential customers. I'm Pat Iyer, the author of 60 plus books. I work with LNCs as a coach and a teacher. As someone who maintains two blogs on a regular basis, I bring my expertise in blogging to my work with my clients. I also get to hear their fears about blogging. It's a big commitment. You have to do it every week at least. How does anyone think of all those article subjects? No one will ever visit my blog. They've held on to their resistance because no one ever came along to challenge them and offer solutions. That's why I decided to author this book. When you read it and follow its recommendations, you'll be able to comfortably start or improve your blog. You'll learn what blogging schedule works best for you how to create your blog posts, why consistency is more important than frequency, why you need to be mindful about how you use humor, the power of a good story. One of the most useful parts of this book is that it explores a wide variety of blogging styles. You can choose from a personal style blog, blogs based on quotations, a day in my business life format, how you solved a particular problem in your business, comments on events related to your business, and many more topics. The appendix of this book will entertain you with a story-based blog series. As an LNC, you have choices about how to spend your time and money. You can invest a fortune in advertising, or you can invest time in a blog. Read the book and learn that investing this time can yield you profits. And you might even have fun doing it. Order the book as an instant download version on my website at lnc.tips forward slash creating series. Now let's return to the show. Well, we're using medical diagnoses but there certainly may be times where that overlaps a little bit, mm -hmm. um, like failure to thrive. We use that a lot in a geriatric population. Mm. So yes, I mean, it can be both, but predominantly we're using ICD-10 diagnosis codes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Failure to thrive brings me back to um, my son who was who weighed 18 pounds when he was 18 months old, and he got a diagnosis of failure to thrive. So you can have it at the other end of the spectrum. You also. can, the full <laughs> spectrum. <laughs> but he eventually learned how to eat and figured out that food was good and, and gained weight. But after good. all the diagnostic tests to rule out all of these horrible childhood mm -hmm. pediatric illnesses, had been done. When you are looking at a case for liability, where does that diagnosis come into play in your evaluation about whether the care was appropriate? 
Well, we had talked a little bit on the very first podcast that I did with you about what are the common areas of litigation for nurse practitioners. And top of the list would be failure to diagnose or misdiagnosis, delay in treatment. So making the correct diagnosis absolutely is critical in terms of determining whether the standard of care was followed and whether there was any negligence. Yes. I'm sure as a a family nurse practitioner, you've had people who've come into your office with the severe case of heartburn that they just, it just can't go away. And then you sit there as the nurse practitioner thinking, is it GI? Is it cardiac? What do I do? I would, I know from being involved in cases and reading about cases that missing an impending MI is a huge source of liability. Absolutely. All things cardiac are huge sources of liability. And your example of, you know, severe heartburn is a good one because that definitely happens. And we always, as nurse practitioners, kind of walk a fine line of you don't necessarily want to do an EKG and send everyone to the emergency room. You know, that's not good either. But at the same time, you need to take your time and tease that out based on the clinical setting. It's all individualized for the patient. And, you know, what are their symptoms? What are their risk factors? What is their physical exam showing? And, and all of that brings us back around to looking at records as a legal nurse consultant, trying to determine was there negligence or not. And it's not just the A portion of that SOAP note or the diagnosis, but it's everything before that and everything after that, that you have to look at that is critical. And you can't, and again, we could spend hours talking about documentation, but to simplify it, if you're going to diagnose somebody with heartburn or let's say chest pain, everything prior to getting to that diagnosis has to be there. And that's part of what I'm looking for in a medical record um, for these nurse practitioner cases and it's as simple as going back to the, the chief complaint. If we take the example of cardiac issues, heartburn versus is it, you know, acute coronary syndrome, which is the diagnosis code we we use in determining whether it's a potential MI or not. When I'm looking at that record, I'm gonna walk it back. Okay, do they have a chief complaint listed? What was the patient's chief complaint? Sometimes that gets confused in the medical record. And I try to work with medical assistants and work with the other nurse practitioners that there is a reason for the patient's visit, meaning the reason it was scheduled. And maybe in my mind or my medical assistant or the front office person has put the reason is for lab results or the reason is for routine follow-up. But that may not be the patient's chief complaint. That chief complaint is critical to have because that's what the patient is saying, the main reason that they're there. What's the what's the chief complaint for the patient? So that's critical to be there. And then you've got to have 
the supporting evidence in your history of present illness and your review of systems. And a lot of times I see under history of present illness, and we talked a little bit again in the first podcast, you have to be careful using templates because in electronic medical records, there is a template for almost anything, really. You can find it. You can create it. So let's say somebody comes in and their chief complaint is heartburn and you select that, then it's going to pre-populate a kind of blanket generic history of present illness. And sometimes I look through records and the nurse practitioner hasn't even added any additional information in that templated HPI. I look at it and I really have no true idea what is the patient really feeling at that moment. So you have to be careful there as a nurse practitioner. I'm not saying you can't use templates, you can, but you have to go back in and specialize, tailorize them to what the patient is really there for. And, you know, again, you have to have the review of systems needs to match what you said in your HPI. I've seen this come up in cases where let's say they um, have a diagnosis of chest pain and in the HPI, you may have said, okay, they have chest pain for three days, you've extra, you've described it, et cetera. But under review of systems, all your cardiac is negative. Those have to match because an attorney is going to call you out on that. And I've seen it happen in a deposition just to kind of undermine your, your word in the sense of, well, you said he had it here, but you didn't say he had it there. So what is it kind of thing? And then you have to have the matching elements in the physical exam. You can't diagnose somebody with chest pain, rule out MI, and have no cardiac exam, no lung exam. I've seen that happen in notes too. So um, it's critical that they all match and help you to get to that diagnosis. And that's a great point, Rebecca. It, it happens in office records. It happens in hospital records. I think about people who are in um, ICU in drug-induced comas, <clears throat> and the template says that they're alert and oriented times three. Yeah. And you sit there and look at that and say, but no, <laughs> not responding. They're not withdrawing from pain. They're not um, opening their eyes to voice, and yet they can't be alert and oriented times three. Mm-hmm. It is... Yeah. It's so tempting uh, for people who are under pressure and using electronic medical records to do blind documentation or thoughtless rote documentation without looking at each of those fields carefully to say, does that match the way that this condition of this patient is being displayed? Absolutely, because you you have to remember too, in cases let's say you've narrowed it down to there's a specific visit date or a specific time where kind of things went bad, let's say, for for lack of a you know better description. But you're not just going to get that office note. That's not just what you're going to review. You're going to review all the office notes prior to that. And let's say if you're a nurse practitioner um, and you're using templates every single time, and I've seen this happen in notes, the prior six visits look identical because they've templated, 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 templated. And you, you just can't do that. Not only is it just, you're providing, you know, suboptimal care to people. 
it's it's going to set you up for kind of the perfect storm to have someone <laughs> try to litigate or um, sue you. And I don't think that nurse practitioners think that way enough. And it's sad that we we do have to practice in that fashion, but that's the reality. You have to document in a way that's accurate, it's concise, it's competent, um, and it's tailored to the patient. And you can train yourself as a nurse practitioner. Nurse practitioners can be taught to document well like that. You can use a template, but you have to go back in. You have to tailorize that HPI section, make sure it matches your review system section, make sure you do the proper exam. And all it takes kind of is at the end of your visit with that patient, 30 seconds before you pop into the next room, walk it back through, make sure you have all those things that match. And that's a great point, Rebecca, because the pressure in, at least in the American healthcare system, and I'm sure it's existing elsewhere, is get the patients in and out, get them in and out, get them in and out. Where do you take the time to go through and make sure that that documentation is accurate? The time to do it is not three months later or a year later when the nurse practitioner finds out that they're the target of a lawsuit. Absolutely. And that makes a good point too of why you have to tailorize it. And I always try to encourage nurse practitioners that let's say you are sued months down the road or years down the road, and you may have zero and chances are you're going to have zero recollection of that particular patient. And probably not, you know, the particular event when this is happening. I mean, that's predominantly what I read in depositions is that, and the attorneys are going to ask you, do you have any independent recollection? And most of the time, 99% of the time, they do not. They absolutely do not. And so you have to learn to document in a way and give enough information in that HPI that you remember the event, that you remember what was going on with that patient. Because not only is it going to help you when you look back over that note, but it's going to help potentially another provider that may come behind you. That's why you can't use the, the templates that are really designed for coding purposes to make sure that, you know, you're, you're getting a level four visit over a level three visit, but they're not designed, I don't think, to necessarily help the providers. So... You have to be as detailed as you can, but as efficiently as you can. And for the legal nurse consultant who's looking at that entry, which could be a critical entry amongst all of the reams of documentation, it could be one office note, one symptom that's missed, one abnormal test result that's not followed up on, one misdiagnosis that is pivotal in the case we are ideally wired to pick up those discrepancies and missing information as we're looking at those medical records. We might be screening the case before it goes to you, Rebecca, as the mm -hmm. expert on the case. And all of the team hang their hat. They rely on what's documented in the medical record to make those judgments 
it is always amazing, right? It could be just one word in one record that completely changes the complexion of the case. Absolutely. And, you know, again, we could talk for hours about about this topic, but I would just say both as a nurse practitioner and when you're reviewing these cases as a legal nurse consultant, um, you have to, and, and we already talked about, remember that missing a diagnosis or delaying making the diagnosis or making the wrong diagnosis, obviously that's what we do as, as healthcare providers. We figure out what's wrong with people or making that diagnosis, but do everything you can um, as a nurse practitioner to make that diagnosis as strong as possible. And that's what I'm looking for as a legal nurse consultant as well. And when I say strong, you want to look and see that they have listed out kind of what are the differential diagnoses for this particular complaint. And attorneys want to see that, and this is how it should be documented as a um, competent nurse practitioner, a strong diagnosis is going to include that differential diagnosis. But remember, I'm looking for in my reviews that for each diagnosis, there's a plan, there's a specific plan, a treatment plan for each thing. And oftentimes you don't have it. You know, you may have a diagnosis that pops in there. There's no plan. There's no um, exam that matches it. There's no history that matches it. And oftentimes that's the main, that's the main crux of the case that maybe the patient told you about at the very last minute. But for each diagnosis, you have to have what the treatment is. And then the key points are what, you know, what is the, what is your plan? For example, if the chest x-ray is negative, then we're gonna attain a CAT scan or they will refer to pulmonologist for pulmonary function testing. You wanna spell out and I'm looking for, what are the next steps? What are you doing to kind of rule in a diagnosis or rule out another diagnosis? And then the two main things that attorneys look for and that we should absolutely 100% be doing as nurse practitioners, always, always, always have a excuse me, a follow-up plan listed. When are you seeing that patient back? And you have specified it in the medical record. Follow up with me in three days. And then you also want to make sure that they're saying, what should the patient do if they're not better or they are worse, right? Because we talked about the concept of severe heart burn and is that potentially an MI, so you have to think about that as a nurse practitioner. You have to look for that as a legal nurse consultant. Did you tell them, come back in two days, or did you tell them, is it written there that that nurse practitioner said, if the chest pain worsens or doesn't resolve, go to the emergency room immediately? And did the patient agree with that? Um, I had an attorney once, and I'll, I'll give this as a little pearl for nurse practitioners um, and legal nurse consultants, frankly, but... You always want to document that you've answered all the, like the last thing you write, you've answered all the patient's questions, number one. And don't lie. I mean, make sure you have answered their questions. I'm not saying just write it there, but you've answered all their questions that they understand and agree with the plan of care and that the risks of noncompliance were reviewed. And that can prevent a lot of lawsuits. 
Oh, it sure can. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, I know that our listeners are going to want to know how to get in touch with you. What would be the best way for that to happen? They can email me directly, and my email is Rebecca at HeschelMedicalLegal.com, or they could reach out to me on Instagram, and it's the, the same on Instagram. So hopefully they will reach out. And can you spell your last name? Sure. It's P as in Paul, A-S as in Sam, C-H-A-L-L. All right. Rebecca Prashel. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for sharing your knowledge. This is a specialized area of nursing, an advanced practice area, and certainly one that's important for being able to extend healthcare to many populations and expand the reach of office practice, but carries with it liability risks. And we've explored some of those related to common areas of liability in Rebecca's previous podcast. And in this one, we talked about the analysis of those office notes and how critical it is to pull them apart and look to see if the standard of care was met. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, Rebecca. Thank you, Pat. And I would invite you as our listener to go to our new Facebook group. We have a group for legal nurse consultants called LNC Business Growth Circle. It is a private group where you have an opportunity to meet with people who are legal nurse consultants. I'll be doing some Facebook Lives in that group periodically. And it's a wonderful opportunity to network, potentially get cases, get your questions answered, and support each other in this specialized practice of nursing. That's LNC Business Growth Circle on Facebook, a new group that I established. Thanks so much, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about a topic that gives rise to a lot of litigation and that is the development of pressure injuries. Lydia Myers Coram is our guest. She is a wound care expert, and she shared with us quite a few topics around pressure injuries. Lydia, what will our listener find out about when they watch your show or listen to your show? Thank you, Patricia. They'll find out about different ways that pressure injuries happen from being in a wheelchair too long, to laying in bed too long, not being offloaded. We will talk about how to assess the patient prior once they come in and throughout their visit. We will look at many different factors that cause, not only for the compliant patient, but what about that non-compliant patient? How did we handle those areas? Those are all very important when we're looking through the charting as an LNC. We need to be sure we're looking at why it happened. There were lots of tips and tricks that we talked about in this podcast. It's one that you'll want to be sure to watch when you are thinking about how to evaluate a case involving the development of a pressure injury. 
So come back next week or click on down below in order to see Lydia and I talk about pressure injuries. Thanks so much. share her knowledge on that list of topics that she just so nicely recited without notes. And you'll get inspired and educated on this role. See you at the next Legal Nurse Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.